Hey everyone, just a quick note about the podcast you're about to listen to. We recorded this over the summer, so some things may be a little out of date. However, we still think it's a great conversation, and we hope you enjoy it. Hi, I'm Holden, and welcome back to Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show focused on policy analysis in international affairs. In today's episode, I spoke with Charles Burton about Michael Koverg and Michael Spavor, Huawei, Hong Kong's national security law, the Uyghurs, and the future of Canada-China relations. Charles Burton is a senior fellow at the McDonnell-Laurie Institute and a contributor to MLI's Centre for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad. He is also a non-resident senior fellow at the European Value Centre for Security Policy and a former professor in the Department of Political Science at Brock University specializing in comparative politics, government and politics of China, Canada-China relations, and human rights. He was a counselor at the Canadian Embassy to China between 1991 and 1993, and again from 1998 to 2000, and previously worked at the Communications Security Establishment of the Canadian Department of National Defense. He has published extensively on Chinese and North Korean affairs in Canada-China relations, and has been commissioned to write reports on matters relating to Canada's relations with China for agencies of the Government of Canada. Charles is a frequent commentator on Chinese affairs in newspapers, radio, and TV. It's great to speak with you. I would like to start our conversation today with the two Michaels, uh, Michael Koberg and Michael Spaver. So after 557 days of confinement, the two Michaels were formally charged with espionage, which, as you know, is punishable by life in prison and carries a minimum 10-year sentence. We also know that these proceedings invariably result in a guilty verdict and that judges are instructed by the Chinese Communist Party as to what verdict and sentence to apply. In the wake of the charges, we saw 19 notable Canadians, including former diplomats and parliamentarians, write an open letter to the Prime Minister urging the immediate release of Meng Wanzhou, arguing that doing so would not only guarantee the release of the two Michaels, but that it would also place Canada in a better position to redefine its strategic approach to China. What are your thoughts on the propositions outlined in the letter? And what kind of message would a so-called prisoner exchange send not only to China, but our enemies and allies as well? Well, you know, I think it's very difficult for us to arrange anything like a prisoner exchange in the sense that uh, Meng Wanzhou is currently uh, undergoing a judicial procedure to determine whether the U.S. request for extradition of Ms. Meng to the court in the Western District of New York to face uh, serious charges of fraud is um, consistent with the terms of the Canada-U.S. extradition treaty. So, you know, from that point of view, it's a judicial procedure. it may be that, that Ms. Meng will be determined uh, eligible for extradition, or it may turn out that her lawyers will 
come up with uh, effective arguments that Justice Heather Holmes of the BC Superior Court, who's currently um, hearing the uh, the uh, appeal against extradition by uh, Ms. Mung, uh, will determine that, uh, in fact, the U.S. request is not consistent with the terms of the Canada-U.S. extradition treaty, and, and Ms. Mung will be released. I think it's unfortunate that it takes so long for uh, this decision to be made. You know, the, the latest documents that have been brought forth are being um, uh, prepared for hearing that will take place in April 2021. So this matter drags out uh, over a very long period of time and causes a great deal of friction uh, between Canada and China. Now, uh, with regard to the uh, 19 um, uh, person letter, Yes, some very distinguished Canadians, including three former um, ministers of foreign affairs of Canada and a Supreme Court justice, uh, have suggested that the Canadian Minister of Justice exercise a prerogative to um, stop the extradition uh, proceeding uh, forthwith and return Ms. Meng to, to China. I uh, disagree with this idea on uh, two uh, levels. Uh, first of all, um, it does send out a signal to the Chinese regime that hostage diplomacy and the spurious application of non-tariff barriers, in our case, the, the violation of three billion Canadian dollars annual export contracts of canola seeds to China, uh, works. You, you know that that the Chinese government by gross violations of the norms of diplomacy and trade are able to further their interests in Canada because our government will um, give in to that kind of pressure. Uh, secondly, uh, we don't have any assurance that releasing Ms. Meng would have any impact on the uh, current brutal incarceration of Michael Kovrig and Michael's favor on uh, really no valid charges that we're aware of. The Chinese government has not provided any evidence whatsoever that either of these gentlemen engaged in any activities in violation of China's law. Um, and if it does go to trial, one could expect something like a half-day hearing uh, held in secret on the basis that the Chinese government would say these are national security matters and therefore, um, you know, our, our government and, and the public um, are unable to know the basis for uh, the, the charges and the sentencing. So up to now, uh, it's clear that from the Chinese government's point of view, um, the arbitrary detention of Kovrigan's favor is serving their interests. Um, Canada has not engaged in any policy programming with regard to China that the Chinese government would see as hostile to their interests. We have not banned the um, use of Huawei 5G technology in our telecommunications system. We have not offered safe harbor to um, uh, activists in Hong Kong who could be subject to gross violation of their human rights um, under the new national security legislation there. We have not applied the um, Victims of Corrupt Foreign Officials Act Magnitsky list to sanction Chinese officials who are complicit in um, the um, cultural genocide, possibly genocide, of uh, over a million uh, Turkic Muslims in China's Northwest. So from that point of view, um, 
you know, because the Canadian government will not um, engage in any program incomparable to that of our allies to try and uh, make for consequences for the Chinese regime's gross violations of the norms of the international rules-based order. It seems to me that the people in Beijing find that uh, releasing Kovrigan's favor could be a disadvantage to China's overall agenda in Canada, and therefore I'm I'm not seeing any release until the Canadian government shows some backbone and indicates clearly to the Chinese regime that hostage diplomacy is not something that Canada will respond to and that Canada will cease to, in effect, give tacit consent to Chinese regime behavior by not standing up for our Canadian values in challenging the Chinese government's outrages against Kovrigan's favor and violations of our trade agreement and uh, arguably crimes against humanity being committed uh, domestically within China against a certain ethnic group. Yeah, you've touched on a few things I would like to cover later on in our discussion, but with regards to the two Michaels, their case is eerily similar to that of the Garrett couple, who were arrested and detained in China in 2014, following the arrest of Su Bin, a Chinese national who was working in Canada at the time and was accused of conducting cyber espionage in the United States. Kevin Garrett was detained for approximately two and a half years, I believe, before finally being released and sent back here to Canada. But one of the policy questions the aforementioned Canadians identified in their letter as being complicated by Meng's extradition case is Huawei. Many have stressed that Canada has temporized on this issue for far too long. The UK, for example, one of our partners in the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Alliance, announced last month that they would not be allowing Huawei to participate in their 5G network and that they would be purging all existing equipment by 2027. France, too, has recently announced a de facto ban on Huawei by 2028, and of course the US has been a vocal opponent of Huawei for years now. Why do you think Canada has taken so long to render a decision when all of its closest allies have already made their positions clear? Yes, and I would add that Australia was very early in, in raising the alarm about the security threat posed by uh, the Huawei 5G to uh, telecommunications networks. And, and of course, the United States has indicated that if Canada was to go ahead and put the Huawei 5G into our Bell and TELUS networks, that that would endanger our um, ability to, to be privy to U.S. Um, intelligence information under our uh, Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Consortium, which of course would be disastrous to Canada's control of the border and information about incursions into the territory that we claim in the Arctic. So um, I, I think that there are a couple of issues here. Uh, one is, of course, that there's an enormous financial loss to Bell and TELUS not going through with their plans to put in the Huawei 5G. Um, if they um, proceed without Huawei, which appears to be the direction they're going using Ericsson and Nokia technology. It means that a lot of the Huawei 4G, 3G uh, kit will not be compatible and they'll have to uh, reinstall. So, you know, those companies, um, their mandate is to provide telecommunication services at a competitive price. And the Huawei equipment is being sold at prices which or in some cases as much as 40% lower than Huawei's competitors, which does uh, call into question whether Huawei is being heavily subsidized 
by the government of China because the government of China sees advantages in cyber espionage and, and uh, gathering of personal data uh, through the installation of a Chinese-based um, 5G telecommunications provider. So, you know, you have, you have um, the immediate pressure of Bell and TELUS, and then you have a significant uh, number of Canadian companies who have lucrative, profitable business arrangements with China, who also have considerable influence um, in the center of our government and the prime minister's office. And this is natural that, that large Canadian corporations should have the ability to lobby government because they are, you know, the creators of prosperity and employment for Canada. But those companies are under pressure partners to encourage the government to um, tie economic issues to non-economic issues such as uh, uh, China's human rights record, China's uh, pervasive cyber espionage in Canada, the use of agents of the Chinese regime to menace and harass persons in Canada who um, speak the truth about what's going on. And so um, to remove the current restrictions on Chinese state acquisition of Canadian natural resources, energy and mines, and to remove the restriction or an investment review process on the transfer of dual-use technologies from Canada to China. You know, controversially, in recent times, uh, sold uh, a technology applicable to laser-directed uh, satellite system, which had been used by Taiwan and the United States for military purposes. So, you know, there are all these things that, that go together. And I think that our government has been um, more captured by Chinese political influence operations than the governments of other countries. And the, in addition, as a sort of uh, um, correlation, the government of Canada is not um, examining whether Canada should enact legislation comparable to Australia's uh, foreign influence transparency scheme to try and um, get a better grip on policymakers and former policymakers who are the receipt of benefits from a foreign power. In this case, it would be China. So, uh, you know, from that point of view, I think our, our government um, is responding to um, factors which uh, encourage us to engage in policy programming, which uh, serves the interests of the Chinese government. Um, because uh, the Chinese government has a very sophisticated engagement with people of influence in our in our country, and therefore Canada's lagging behind our allies in coming to engage in effective policy measures to protect our um, our security and sovereignty against the uh, the threat that the rise of China presents to us. So it's a long answer to a short question, but I think that. Um, you know, Huawei is simply indicative of a larger issue in terms of Canada's relationship with China, a relationship that I think that a lot of Canadians feel should be re-examined and, uh, and reset to better serve um, Canada's interests, uh, both inside Canada and in terms of protecting um, the rules-based international order, which is so important for a middle power like Canada to maintain its just and reciprocal relations with uh, uh, other powers, particularly larger powers like China. 
Yeah, and that's a perfect segue for my next question, which has to do with how Canada should be reevaluating its relationship with China and why. Because as we've seen, China has frequently resorted to ambiguous and ominous threats, as well as arbitrary and disproportionate countermeasures when confronted with policies it deems unfavorable. In the wake of the arrest of Meng Wanzhou, for example, the two Michaels were apprehended, and as you alluded to earlier, Canadian agricultural exports to China, most notably canola, were unilaterally suspended, resulting in billions of dollars of losses for Canadians. More recently, Australia's call for an international inquiry into the origins of the COVID-19 virus resulted in an inexplicable derailment of their beef and barley exports to China. China consistently demonstrates a complete disregard for the rules-based international order. How can countries like Canada engage with a country that meets criticisms with sanctions? Well, I think that, um, you know, we do have the Common Special Committee on Canada-China Relations, which is looking into uh, these issues and getting some clarity on the true nature of the dynamic between Canada and China. Um, you know, the government opposed the formation of this committee in a, in a minority position in Parliament. Um, you know, the, the committee has gone through. I think that there is uh, increasing pressure among the lesser powers um, to come up with a kind of coalition to ensure a common response and set up common standards uh, to incentivize China to become more compliant with the uh, international rules-based order, you know, the UN, the WTO, and other um, uh, multilateral institutions that ensure fairness and reciprocity based on uh, liberal principles. Uh, you know, presently, a main problem in our relations with China is what you've identified, which is that China takes advantage of the asymmetrical power relations between Canada and China, because Canada is a, uh, a, a smaller, less powerful country, and China is a, is a rising major power, to, um, to use economic leverage to um, uh, achieve its political ends in our country. And so this is not a situation that Canada alone is facing, but uh, all the countries of the world are finding that uh, the Chinese regime is is uh, pushing the envelope of acceptable state relations. So I, I think that we're likely to see a meeting of, of international leaders followed by a working group, followed by a charter, to come up with uh, a, an international strategy to bring China into compliance with the norms that should uh, regulate relations between states. Um, this would be, I guess, largely because of the failure of the UN to achieve this, uh, you know, insurance uh, of the principles of the UN Charter because China has so much influence in the Security Council and by um, co-opting uh, smaller countries to support China in that uh, important institution. So we've got to work outside of the UN framework with like-minded countries to come up with effective measures to send a signal to the Chinese regime that uh, they have to play by the rules of the game and that we will no longer tolerate arbitrary and illegal actions on the part of China in their bilateral relations and that um, there will be consequences for China's violations of, of the larger principles 
particularly in a place like Xinjiang, where it's becoming increasingly apparent that the Chinese government's policies towards the Uyghurs could be um, uh, defined as a genocide under the definition of the uh, first UN uh, uh, convention. So, you know, let's, uh, let's hope that, uh, that this will happen in future. Even if Canada is not going to be a leader in this movement, I think it would be very hard for Canada not to join and therefore to get into compliance with the uh, urgings of our allies and to adopt a more transparent and uh, Canadian values-based approach to China, even if this means that we might suffer economically by Chinese economic retaliation. If I could just say finally in that regard, one has to bear in mind that there is a general misconception about the importance of our exports uh, to China to our overall Canadian prosperity. Since the, um, the uh, Chinese uh, um, non-tariff barriers applied to Canadian agricultural uh, exports have been in place, our total exports to China is now less than 4% of our overall uh, international exports, in contrast to 78% going to the United States. So even if China engaged in extreme measures to sanction Canada, uh, which, of course, Canada would have the right to, to engage in reciprocal measures, um, it's unlikely that this would be devastating for the economy. Uh, for one thing, I don't think China would do it because, you know, seeing as they send three times the amount of commodities into Canada as we send out to China, they would suffer more. And, um, and uh, secondly, most of our exports to China are agricultural commodities or natural resources for which there is a global market. And so while the adjustment would be painful for us, uh, we could seek markets elsewhere. If China's not buying from us, they have to buy from other countries, which then opens up space for the Canadian products. So I'm encouraged that if Canada stands up for our values and our overall uh, interest in maintaining a, a liberal world order, that um, that we can adjust and that, and that the consequences to our employment and prosperity will not be as devastating as uh, some people might think. And just to go back to your point about the potential economic impacts for Canada, if it were to take a stronger stance towards China, I'm kind of reminded of New Zealand and their relationship with China and how they conduct actually a lot more trade with China than Canada does. And yet this economic relationship does little to dissuade them from standing up to China from time to time. Uh, the most recent example being, of course, New Zealand's insistence that Taiwan be granted observer status at the World Health Organization, despite China's intimations that this could lead to a disruption in their bilateral relationship. Similarly, China's burgeoning confidence in pursuing controversial policies in the face of international condemnation was on full display when it imposed its national security law on the city of Hong Kong last month, which you mentioned before effectively ending the one country, two systems model that has been in operation there since it was handed over by the UK in 1997. What exactly does the national security law change in Hong Kong? And why should this concern Canadians? Well, I think, um, you know, to go back to your other point, uh, Australia is, uh, China's Australia's number one trade partner. So the Australian um, very strong um, resistance to China's attempt to 
to destroy the existing international order and replace it by what China calls the community of the common destiny of mankind and of new institutions like the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and the Belt and Road Initiative to um, gradually debase uh, the existing uh, post-war uh, Bretton Woods institutions and others, um, you know, is more courageous. I think with regard to Hong Kong, um, for Canada, one has to bear in mind that there are 900,000 Canadians who speak Cantonese and have Hong Kong background, of which about 600,000 are currently resident in Canada and uh, 300,000 are currently resident in Hong Kong. So we have an enormous stake in uh, in Hong Kong because of the number of Canadians who um, are potentially at risk um, especially under Article 38 of the National Security Law, the Chinese government um, uh, even um, sees uh, persons in Canada who have violated the uh, draconian provisions of this law as culpable and subject to arrest and possible um, transportation to uh, China to face conditions uh, similar to that that Mr. Kovrig and Mr. Staver are facing in terms of meeting the Chinese justice system. So, you know, this is a serious matter. It affects the ability of Canadians, uh, particularly of Hong Kong origin, to travel to countries that have existing um, extradition treaties with China, which is about 40. Um, and it uh, it poses an unacceptable um, uh, degree of threat to uh, the Canadians who are in Hong Kong, whose Canadian citizenship is evidently not being recognized by the Chinese regime who believe that any person of Han ethnicity resident in Hong Kong is in fact um, a de facto Chinese and that their foreign citizenship um, may not apply. So this is an issue that you know, I don't think our government is examining closely enough, but it's very concerning because as Mr. Trudeau has said, a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian and if we are not given consular access to Canadian citizens who are swept up in the national security provisions, um, that would be a very serious matter for us in terms of our multicultural citizenship policies. Um, this, the security law essentially allows the Chinese regime to station um, security agents in Hong Kong who are not accountable to Hong Kong law and also um, makes uh, a broad range of activities uh, susceptible to uh, being charged under this legislation. Um, collusion with foreign forces, for example, which you know could be very broadly interpreted, or any questioning of the, um, of the uh, uh, People's Republic of China rule over Hong Kong makes um, uh, Hong Kong people uh, um, potentially um, eligible for um, very harsh um, uh, judicial treatment. We've already seen some arrests of people for whom under you know, our understanding of Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms have not engaged in anything that violates any form of law. Um, you know, they're simply exercising their freedom of expression and freedom of assembly to express their political preferences. So, you know, these are, are of great concern to us in terms of human rights abuses. 
The other area that gives Canada special um, uh, responsibility with regard to the implementation of this law is that when the Sino-British Joint Declaration that formed the basis for the reversion of the sovereignty of Hong Kong from a British colony to a special autonomous region of China was lodged with the UN, the government of the United Kingdom and the government of the People's Republic of China both asked the government of Canada to endorse this declaration, which we did. So we signed on to it, and therefore we do bear responsibility for seeing its implementation. Clearly, the national security law is a gross violation of the promises of one country, two systems, 50 years of no change, and um, the uh, political autonomy that was guaranteed to Hong Kong, including in you know, the basic law, which grew out of the Sino-British Joint Declaration, uh, Hong Kong would independently determine its security provisions and maintain the independence of its judiciary, which this national security law um, shreds. So, you know, Canada has both a moral and a legal responsibility, as well as a, a, a great stake because of the large number of, of Canadian stakeholders in the uh, political future of Hong Kong. And so our government's utter lack of uh, response in terms of providing, as other countries have, harbor for um, persons who would be persecuted under the national security law to come to Canada and, uh, and enjoy um, the protection of our Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, or our um, inability to sanction um, the uh, Chinese officials who are responsible for the gross violations of international law that the implementation of this draconian measure represents is really an enormous failing on the part of our government and I think uh, a terrific abrogation of our moral responsibility to the very large number of Cantonese-speaking Canadians who want our government to show some backbone and do the right thing by um, the citizens of Hong Kong. And what might actually surprise some people is that Hong Kong is home to the second largest Canadian expatriate population after the U.S. Uh, also, going back to your point about applying sanctions to officials responsible for the imposition and execution of the national security law. I know that the U.S. applied sanctions to 11 individuals last week, I believe, to which the Chinese responded with their own sanctions. Some of the individuals China named came as no surprise. Republican Senator Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, for example. But there were a few more questionable recipients of China's ire, such as the director of the Human Rights Watch, as well as the president of Freedom House. But after the national security law was passed, Canada, among other like-minded nations, suspended its extradition treaty with Hong Kong. We also stopped exporting military equipment to the city, as we no longer recognize it as distinct from China. These decisions clearly indicate a recalibration of our arrangement with Hong Kong, as well as our discontent with China. But this does little to assuage the very real fears of Hong Kongers. So what else can Canada do for Hong Kong? Should we be following the U.S. example of offering Hong Kongers asylum and eventual citizenship? Well, I think that, you know, certainly our abrogation of our extradition treaty with Hong Kong 
is more to protect Canada than to do anything for Hong Kong. If the extradition treaty uh, was not abrogated, uh, which is perfectly legal under international law, I believe it's Article 20, which allows that for that provision. So the Chinese government's insistence that Canada is in violation of international standards and laws is not actually uh, well-based. But imagine if we'd maintained the extradition treaty and China then attempted to extradite uh, people Canada back to Hong Kong to face Chinese justice under this national security law, we would then be obligated to go through a legal process similar to what we did with uh, Meng Wanzhou and with Su Bin as before. And then this could cause further tensions in the relationship. So, you know, I, I see it more as a protection of, of Canadian interests than, than one which shows a great deal of solidarity uh, with the um, fighters for freedom and democracy in Hong Kong. And then the military. I mean, clearly, you know, this national security is likely to lead to violent conflicts between people in Hong Kong and the Chinese regime. Obviously, no one wants to, to the, for the government, from the Canadian government's point of view, if someone picks up a, a rubber bullet or a canister of tear gas off the uh, streets of Hong Kong and sees a Made in Canada label on the back of it, this would be profoundly uh, uh, damaging to, to, to our government. So I think that um, those two measures are, you know, the right measures to undertake, but not particularly meaningful. I do think that it would be uh, correct for Canada to follow the examples of Great Britain and the United States, um, sanction officials uh, of the Hong Kong regime, which would, in fact, um, be highly meaningful as so many senior Chinese officials have significant quantities of unexplained wealth of dubious provenance in our country, um, preparing, I think, against uh, you know factional um, disruption in China that could be damaging to them and their families and and preparing a bolt hole to come here to Canada. So many of them, as we know from Meng Wanzhou, who, you know, for some reason that's unclear, owns two enormous uh, multi-million dollar mansions in Vancouver that she was not occupying in the normal way. And when she was um, detained, it was found that she had, I think, as many as seven uh, passports in her possession at that time. So you know, a lot of uh, a lot of um, uh, Chinese officials uh, would be very unhappy with uh, Xi Jinping's regime if, in fact, the Canadian government prevented them from accessing their assets here in Canada or barred them from coming to Canada if um, they they felt they needed to. So, I think that the sanctions measure would be effective, and providing um, sanctuary to the heroic young people who have been standing up for you know the values that inform our own society of freedom and democracy and the right of uh, political participation is simply a no-brainer i mean obviously we should let those people in because as i said there are more persons of hong kong extraction uh, associated with canada than any other country it would stand to reason that a high proportion of them would choose to come and join their friends and family here in Canada, and therefore um, Canada would become the major source of refuge for um, Hong Kong distance who would be facing political uh, persecution under the national security law, 
and it would be the right thing for us to do. The fact that the government is prevaricating by saying that they're considering use of the Magnitsky sanctions and considering the safe harbor, I think is uh, a pretty disgraceful. Um, you know, if we if we're going to spend as long thinking about that decision as we spent thinking about Huawei 5G, it'll be all over for for the people in Hong Kong. We should be protecting by granting them um, the access to Canada. And on top of all that, you know, Hong Kong immigrants have helped build this country and have been terrific and successful in, uh, in, in our society. And, you know, the more of them that we can bring in, I think the better it is for Canada. Exactly. I don't I don't think anyone would like to see Canada take as long to make a decision about Hong Kong as they have for Huawei. But uh, lastly, I wanted to speak with you briefly about yet another more sinister policy of the Chinese that has raised international alarm. And that was recently addressed by Parliament's subcommittee on international human rights, uh, that being the Uyghurs. To your knowledge, what exactly is happening in Xinjiang? And why have the Chinese taken such a heavy-handed approach in the nominally autonomous region? Well, I, I think that, you know, China is concerned about um, the Uyghurs maintaining their faith in, in Islam and therefore having, uh, you know, uh, a, a higher power uh, for their um, for their you know, spiritual orientation than the leaders of uh, the Chinese Communist Party Standing Committee of the Politburo in Beijing, and also the fact that the Uyghurs have a distinct identity based on their unique history and civilization that suggests that that, that they would prefer that, that um, the traditional Uyghur lands be autonomous and independent from rule from Beijing. They you know, the Beijing autonomous region policy is actually the opposite to what it says, which is that in the autonomous regions, the Chinese government imposes more control than in, uh, you know, the normal provinces. So I think that China perceives that there's a serious problem with the Uyghurs. The Chinese um, approaches of propaganda restricting the transmission of Uyghur civilization um, through uh, mosques and schools and attempting to reduce uh, Uy the Uyghur rich culture to a folkloric standard of, you know, they sing, they dance, they wear colorful costumes, is has not worked. And the Uyghurs have been maintaining their identity and, and pride in their, um, in their culture and religion. So as a means to try and, and engage in cultural genocide, China has adopted internment camps, which engage in um, um, very intense ideological programming uh, for uh, Uyghurs um, by imposing the Mandarin language and not allowing them to speak in their own language. And of course, um, um, not allowing any Uyghurs in the um, internment camps to practice their religion on the basis that under Chinese law, religion can only be practiced in recognized state facilities. Uh, of which um, the camps would not be uh, those kind of facilities. So you have this uh, enormous program of pulling parents away from their children and keeping them in these camps for very long periods until the Chinese government is satisfied that they 
are no longer identifying with Uyghur culture or Islam, and then they've been transporting them to work um, in forced labor uh, conditions in factories. So, um, you know, there's some debate as to whether what China's doing in the uh, Uyghur regions is amounting to genocide. There have been increasing amounts of evidence, particularly found by a German scholar, Adrian Zenz, that uh, China is engaging in forced sterilization of Uyghur women through uh, non-voluntary tubal ligations to prevent um, you know, the, the younger generation from emerging. Uh, and of course, because uh, Uyghur couples are are kept separate in the internment camps, that also reduces the uh, the uh, ability of Uyghurs to uh, have children. So, um, you know, if it is in fact genocide, then that that brings in a lot more international um, obligations to the global community to to respond to it. Um, uh, in general. I think that uh, you know we should be doing much more to recognize that what's going on in the Uyghur regions is a crime against humanity, and should therefore be sanctioning the Chinese officials involved and and working harder to protect the community of Uyghurs in Canada from menace and harassment uh, by agents of the Chinese regime here. It's uh, you know this is probably the most outrageous uh, uh, crime against humanity that's been taking place in the world in this century. And I think it's uh, uh, disgraceful for the Canadian government to, in effect, stand idly by and let this continue unanswered um, because of our um, domestic uh, political desire to maintain uh, productive trade and relations with the regime that that is complicit in these violations of international norms. And as you've mentioned, Canada's response thus far has largely consisted of platitudinous statements of concern over the treatment of Uyghurs. And Canada has also implored that China grant the UN unfettered access to the camps. But the US, on the other hand, has already applied Magnitsky sanctions on Chinese entities and officials linked to the repression in Xinjiang and Sweden has announced that it will grant refugee status to China's persecuted minorities. So I guess my last question would be, what is your policy recommendation for Canada's approach to Xinjiang? Well, I think the sanctions are, are an obvious measure. We have this Magnitsky Act. We have officials from many countries uh, in the Magnitsky list, Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Myanmar, and so on. How is it that you know, Chinese officials who are engaged in in violations of international human rights on a much larger scale than those countries are absent from our Magnitsky list. Um, you know, it's a law of Canada, so why is it being um, applied in a different way towards China, which I think uh, emboldens the Chinese regime to feel that Canada is giving uh, tacit consent for this kind of activity. So I, I do think that that's one measure. The other measure which has been undertaken by some countries is refusing to accept the import of the products of forced Uyghur labor into their markets. Um, it's a recent incident where um, wigs um, apparently made from hair shorn 
from Uyghur women before their incarceration uh, were being sold. Um, the U.S. legislation makes it incumbent on importers of products from Xinjiang to demonstrate that they are not the products of forced labor. So it's not a question of being able to, sh you have to show that it's not on the assumption that so much of it is. A uh, terrific amount of cotton products are coming out of Xinjiang. Uh, Xinjiang is a major cotton producer globally, so a lot of Chinese cotton is made, um, cotton cloth is made with cotton from Xinjiang. I think we have to look at this very carefully and uh, do the right thing and say no to the products of forced labor by uh, persons who are being voluntarily incarcerated in uh, ideological retraining facilities and subject to very harsh treatment, including allegations of, of serious torture and death against uh, awful camps. Well, Professor, you've given listeners a lot to consider. But before I let you go, I just wanted to ask whether there are any ongoing or past projects of yours that you would like to direct our listeners to. Well, my main uh, work is uh, in Canada-China policy, I, and I've been also engaged in uh, considerable um, consulting for European governments. I'm uh, not actually a professor anymore. I'm a senior fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute in Ottawa and a non-resident senior fellow at the European Values Centre for Security Policy in Prague. And through that second affiliation, um, I've been fairly active in trying to assist European governments in their own reset with China, because those governments typically have a high degree of expertise in Russian security um, threats to their nation. They're increasingly becoming aware that China poses arguably a much greater threat to their security, and, and they don't have, uh, at present, they haven't cultivated the sort of expertise to know how to address this in a way which serves their interests. So I'm doing that kind of work both uh, in Canada and abroad, trying to establish um, what are the uh, boundaries of acceptable diplomatic behavior uh, by the Chinese regime, and what sort of legislation should Canada be uh, adopting to meet these uh, new challenges for which our legislative framework is currently uh, inadequate? Um, so that's uh, that's really been the focus of my uh, of my work. It's uh, it's a pretty dismal topic, um, but uh, I think I'm sort of uh, too old to to retrain to something else. We'll just have to continue to persist and hopefully will the consensus in Canada and around the world on the China threat is uh, um, developing. And I'm hoping that, uh, you know, under this government or under a future government that we'll see much more effective um, protection of Canadian interests and a much greater understanding of how we can best engage with China to the mutual interests of both countries. So it's been great to speak with you today. Thank you for having me on. Thank you, Professor, for coming on. Uh, dismal, but absolutely essential work. Thank you. Well, take it easy, sir, and I will be in touch with you soon. Okay, look forward to that. Take care.